Hey, what's up? Welcome back to the Mental Edge Training Coach Podcast here with Chad Hermanson. Today, I have a special guest, a former minor league teammate of mine in Augusta and in Lynchburg. His name is Todd Blylevin. Todd is the son of Hall of Fame pitcher Burt Blylevin. So we were teammates in A-ball together. Fantastic dude. He's been around the game of baseball for quite a long time, not only as a minor league player, but also as a scout. So he's got a lot of things going on. He has a scout hub app that helps in the recruiting process of players. So he teaches a lot of players about the recruiting process. And he also had his life changed on October 1st, 2017. He was in the mass shooting here at Mandalay Bay in Las Vegas and was a survivor or is a survivor of this mass shooting and has just an incredible story about what he did that particular night, what it was like, the therapy and everything that he's had to go through in this whole experience. So I was able to listen to his story the other day uh, on another podcast and was just amazed at what he did and truly shows the type of dude that he is. And he's just an amazing guy. So you're going to love this experience. So enjoy this conversation with Todd Y11. All right, Mr. Todd Bly Levin. What's going on, man? How are you? What's up, brother? It's Dude, been a long time. It's great to see you, man. We we're, we're just laughing at all the grays we got now and and, <laughs> and you you're 50. Like you just hit the 50 mark, right? That's that's a big mark. How are you feeling about that? I'm going backwards. So I think I think you hit yeah. 50. It's like a boomerang effect. Now I'll be 49 this year coming up in go. September. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I feel good. I feel young. There you go. There you go. Yeah. Perfect. So you and I, we first met in the minor leagues, right? If, correct me if I'm wrong, Augusta. That's that's where we we first started. Uh, uh, you were a pitcher. I was a position player. Um, now tell us about kind of your draft story. You were, you're out of California. Tell us about how that whole process went. And I'm going to just preface this to the people listening. We're going to talk about Todd's career here, some of the expectations he had, and then we're going to get into the heavy stuff a little bit that really changed your life. So we're going to kind of build up to that. So just to kind of give the, the audience a little heads up here, but yeah, tell us about your, your draft story and how that all came about. Yeah. Uh, you know, I grew up uh, in a baseball household. My dad played, uh, you know, Burt Bly 11, he's in the hall of fame. And so growing up in those, uh, yeah, not bad. <laughs> he, he, he was pretty good, but uh, you know, growing up in that household, there was a lot of expectations, obviously, and I'm sure we'll touch on that in a little bit. But um, the uh, I was obviously a really good high school player. Uh, you know, I was one of the best in the state and then the country. And uh, I had just about every school in the country offering me, you know, big scholarships. And I worked really hard to get to that point. Um, I knew that I was pretty good. Uh, and I had some big offers coming in pre-draft. Um, mm. you know, what, uh, what really hurt me was I think a lack of education on my parents' side with how the draft really works mm -hmm. and how a scout, and you know, this, and, you know, I was a major league scout as well for eight years. Uh, when you go into a, a prospect's home, a prospect like you, or like me when I was in high school, um, 
and you're saying, hey, I, are you are you draftable in the second round, the third round? And they're putting some money down on the table in terms of what that round could look like financially. And if you don't play your cards right and you don't have expectations and goals before that question is asked and you don't know what the answer is, those clubs leave your house and they say, well, we can't take you because we can't take that risk. And I remember Houston and Kansas City and Texas all came into our home and wanted to take me somewhere around that second, third round. Houston slid over a piece of paper on a coffee table. And <laughs> my mom was like, nope, first round money or nothing. Mm. And at that point, you know, I'm sitting there going, hold on. My dad's a big league player. Like, we don't need the money. I need yeah. the money. Right. <laughs> you know, I want the money. But I was 17, um, you know, going out of high school. So the draft didn't really work out for me very well going through high school. I was selected. It was more of an honorary thing. Um, you know, I was definitely uh, an all American and all state selection, went to college, didn't really care for where I went first. Uh, it was a transfer coaches transferred my, uh, about two months before school started from Cal state Fullerton. That's where I originally was in Letterman Letterman 10. It was right down the road from my house. Uh, mm -hmm. super excited to go there. Even had a blue and gold golf bag that somebody had given me. So I was, I was pumped. I was ready to be a Titan. Uh, and then the coaches transferred um, and I went with them. Uh, and, you know, it just kind of went uh, a little bit sideways for a bit. Ended up going to Cypress College. I really enjoyed that. We won state. I think about 19 of us on that team got drafted that year. Wow. Played with some great players. Um and then ended up at Fresno State and signed my junior year. So my first year of pro ball was 1993 uh, and going into rookie ball with the Angels. So I enjoy I mean, you remember when you signed that contract and now you're a pro player and it's just elevated. All of a sudden it's like, yeah, I've reached this milestone in my life. Mm -hmm. Now let's see what I can do. And then you get to spring training or uh, to rookie ball. And you're a little nervous, but you put those, that uniform on. And I still remember putting the, my, my legs in my pants and, you know, light, lacing up my spikes and everything's new and walking out on that field with everybody else. And there's just this pride that you have mm -hmm. and you're a pro baseball player. And I thought, man, that was all worth it. Every single mile I ran and everything was just worth it at that moment. So there's my draft story, yeah. um, a little bit up and down, but I really enjoyed every minute. So I'm I'm curious about, you know, the obvious, right? You're the son of Bird Blylevin. So Hall of Fame pitcher is known as ha wanting, ha having one of the best curveballs ever in the game. What was that like growing up for you? Maybe the expectation of here's dad. Did you try to be just like him? What was that like for you? Yeah, it definitely had its perks and its benefits. I mean, I got to be on a big league field up until I was really – probably all the way through high school, to be honest. Um, you know, I traveled around with my dad. Uh, uh, you know, I went everywhere with him. You know, I got a chance to rub elbows with some of the best players in the game and learn the game. And, you know, these guys took their time to, like, play catch with me and hit with me. And uh, it was so much fun, man. It was just a totally different world. And they just opened up their world to me as a kid. And I was very respectful to their space. I knew at a young age, like, when there was a loss to – keep your tone down. It's not the time to go running around the clubhouse and, mm -hmm. and go play tag with everybody. Like they're, you know, they take it very, it's a job. It's very, very serious at that moment, but when they win, it's a celebration. And, you know, I really learned a lot on 
how to deal with your adversity through that time. But, you know, I think the first time I, I, I had always known my dad played and I always, you know, I'd get friends coming up and giving me the double handshake where they would, you know, I'd meet a group of kids and then all of a sudden they'd find out my dad was a big leaguer and they'd give me the second handshake, you know, or the mm-hmm. second high five or wanted to hang out with me more at that point. Okay. And so I started to kind of learn how to filter my friendships out with people that really liked me opposed to, uh, and I think I was a likable kid, but really kind of just wanted to like hang out with me and ride bikes and things opposed to just because of who my dad was. But I remember I was on the mound at Villa Park High School in Southern California. And I think I had a no hitter going through six and I struck a kid out. And all I heard in the dugout was uh, that's Burt Blylevin's son. That's Burt Blylevin's son. Oh, no wonder why that's Burt's kid. (laughs) And I'm like, you know what? My name is Todd. And I'm going to strike the next guy out. And so I struck the next guy. I think I was trying to throw harder and harder. And um, But I, I started to realize like, wow, no matter how good you are, I'm always going to have that label on me. And I think that kind of hurt a little bit too, going into pro ball. Um, there yeah. was always expectations on my breaking ball. Sure. I had a good one, um, but I didn't have my dad's. My dad's yeah. isn't a, He's amongst, you know, two of the best with Sandy Koufax and Burt Blylevin when you think all-time best curveballs. And how do you compare to that? So Mm -hmm. I remember sitting with, uh, even like when we were in Augusta or in Lynchburg and, you know, uh, working with some of the pitching coaches and even managers, like they'd sit me down and talk to me about, you know, about what my dad did or uh, maybe having the control and command of my fastball away like my dad had. And I should spend some time with him. And I'm like, I do spend time with him. I'm just not as good as he is. And I think that was one part where I started to realize like, man, I'm seven and a half years into this, yeah. uh, going up and down all over the place. I've lived all over the country and I'm doing the best I can. I'm in the best shape of my life. Um, but I'm not, I'm not hitting that mark, you know, which was a big, big point in my life where I had to think about calling it quits and, and moving on uh, mm-hmm. from that moment. But yeah, it was a lot of expectations and most of it was all great. You know, it was all great. Uh, I just went out and did my best. Yeah. 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 It's, you, you did what you can. No, that's, that's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah. You just kind of figure there's everyone handles it differently and there's different circumstances on how they go about it. And um, I find it really interesting that a coach would say just in a way, Hey, just do it like your dad does. Right. That's, that's kind of weird to me, but um, yeah. at the same time, it's sometimes you as a coach, you don't know what else to do or say. <laughs> yeah. I, I look at the knowledge. Now you look back, you know, cause we're older and we have more skin in the game. We've been around more players, more coaches. And some of the guys that, you know, I think we both had probably going through the system. I mean, great guys, great coaches, but I think there's sometimes a lack of empathy on maybe what a player is going through or right. a lack of connection, you know, and really trying to identify like how to get that horse to really run mm-hmm. and, and run the right way. And, um, and it's not their fault by any means. It's just care, you know, knowing character and, and, uh, having a, an idea on, um, just different mentalities on, or different methodologies on pitching, for example, you know, mm-hmm. one guy always taught the same way, no matter who you were. I mean, we had Andrew Lorraine coming from the left side, we had some good pitchers coming up, but everybody had their quirkiness. And this guy like wanted to cookie cut everybody and it ended up hurting some guys, you know, and I, at one point just had to tell him coach, like 
I'm not, I'm not who that you want me to be. Like I like to get big and wild with my leg and, yeah. and throw it as hard as I can. And, um, you know, that at that moment, you know, that's when I think like, because of who I was, I got a little bit of like leeway and, you know, in times because I would throw down quotes from like a Marcel Latchman or different big league <laughs> pitching coaches that I've been right. around. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it uh, I'll tell you, I really had a blast growing up and um, I wouldn't trade it for a minute. Yeah. Uh, you know, even, even with the expectations and I still get it today. I still get the double handshake, you know, which, sure. uh, yeah, which well, you'll, normal. you'll always be Bert's son, right? Yeah, so totally I'm, normal. I'm sure you probably get to the point, like, this is just the way it is. Yeah. And it's not than, bad. He's yeah. a good guy. You yeah. know, he's, he's, he's a swell fellow. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so it's kind of funny. So we've kind of reconnected here and we, you had scouted for a while and I scouted for a while, but I, I we never crossed paths really in that area, but, um, I've told this story before when I had Banny on Jeff Bannister, when we were in Kingston and we brought it up the other day when we were kind of reconnecting here. So I want you to tell the story about when we're in Kingston, what you remember about it and kind of the whole thing there. Well, uh, we were, that was the Indians, uh, a ball, right? Yep. I remember. Right. Um, so old time stadium and it started to rain and uh, they had a big cover, you know, it was a big stadium. And so all the fans started going up and they started putting the tarp on and we were in a rain delay. It's it's heavy rain. It was heavy <laughs> rain. Yeah. I mean, it came down, it came down pretty quick. Yeah. And uh, I don't know who, who initiated it, but um, it was you and me. And I think sweet, maybe who Jonathan sweet. Jonathan yep. Sweet. I think there's just the three of us. Yeah. And we decided that we were gonna to rile up the fans. Was we Dilly in there? Up. Was John Dillinger huh? in there? Yes. I Dilly, think okay. Dilly was I think in there. Was four, yeah. Yep. John Dillinger. <laughs> and I think I think we uh yeah, we started home plate and we started running around the bases. Wait, what yeah. what were we wearing? If you remember that. I think we kind of everyone did a different thing, but I, I was in just my um sliding shorts. That was it. Shirt off. <laughs> I think I had my uniform on. Did you? I think I was. I think I was fully dressed, man. I didn't so have you had your number. You're gonna get in big trouble. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I. But I remember we ran around. We slid all over that thing and uh, just soaking wet. And the dugout was down the third baseline. Yep. So we had to run down to the dugout, and then we all decided we're just gonna jump in the shower, and maybe Benny wouldn't find yeah. out about it. it. And ba- so what, what was interesting, so we're like, Banny's a young manager. He's probably like, mother F in this rain. I want to play. He's the only one in the dugout with maybe like two other guys or something. And the dugout was down below ground That's level right. and it started to fill up. So I, I, I even remember we were taking cups and like making boats out of them and just starting to, then I, we're like, okay, well, we better get out of here. This is getting bad, right? So otherwise yeah. we're not going to be able to get out of here. Yep. But so he stayed <laughs> and then we're running and then we slide. And I, you know, I, so I was really, so it was two pitchers and a position player. If you look at it that way. And I slid at about shortstop, which was my position at the time. And I went like all the way to the first baseline, <laughs> <laughs> got up and you hear Benny like, hi, what are you guys doing? <laughs> and I'm like, oh, well, he sees us, right? And 
And it, it, we were pumped up because the crowd was going like, yeah, go. They were cheering us on. So we we entertained the fans, right? Yep. Got yep. back up and they were like, let's let's just let's just run back to the clubhouse, which is like in left field, right? And <laughs> and we're like, let's just jump in the shower, just shower, get dressed real quick. Maybe he doesn't know what's us, right? And I think he got correct me if I'm wrong, but he got back to the clubhouse and we were still in the shower. And he's like, you and you and you. That's right. He starts pointing. Get dressed and get in my office. <laughs> I thought I was done. <laughs> right. And then, so I'm, I was, uh, so I'm 18, right. I'm just an idiot high, out of high school, basically. I'm in my, my first full year, right. It, in Lynchburg, this is in Lynchburg when we were playing for them. Yeah. Um, I think you, so you were like, what, two years in. So this was 96, two or three years in. I was like, that was like four years in for me. Okay. Yeah. But I you're like, I should have like, known better. You're like our, one of our top guys. Right. And, and, and we're like, yeah, let's just do it. And then Danny comes in. He's like, you guys realize what happens if you get hurt? Like there's stakes in the ground. Like what if you get cut yourself open and, and, and of course we were like, Oh, sorry. So I didn't, we didn't think fall. about that. Like, I just want to slide on the tarp. Like I just, you know who thinks about getting hurt right <laughs> hey man 30 years later or whatever it is or whatever it's been yeah uh we're telling this story again yeah yeah, yeah it's so it, it is it's, it's one of the greatest like i i totally remember all of it you know and just how fun that was right yeah. and, and that, that was a fun team we we did pretty well i i came up in the second half from augusta and um i think you did too i didn't you come yep. up we yeah kind of around the same time and yeah, but yeah, it's obviously a long time ago, but, um, but yeah, great stories. And so you kind of, so kind of moving forward through your career, you wrap up your career. Think what you played seven, eight years. Yeah, so like that, yeah. just short um, of eight. And yeah. then you get right into the scouting side of things, right? Tell us about your scouting career. Yeah, uh, you know, after after baseball uh, ended for me, I went through you know about a year of transition, little little over a year. Um, you know, really depressed. I think a lot like other players, or yeah. even you know, compare it to kind of military coming out and going into civilian life, or say anybody that's been in a long career. Um, so I struggled in that regard, and um, got an opportunity to get into scouting. I called Tim Mead up, that was with the Angels at the time. He was their uh, VP of operations or uh, PR, but he had a high title. And uh, I asked Tim, I'd known him for a long time. Hey, what, what can I do in baseball? I, I just miss it. Mm-hmm. Obviously I can't, you know, I'm not going to play anymore. He said, why don't you go into scouting? You'd be a great scout. Uh, you've been around the game your entire life. Uh, there's a major league scouting bureau was putting on a school in, in Tucson um, that was coming up. Like, I think it was a little more than a month after that call. He said, why don't you prepare for that? And then that's where scouts can get hired from. And so I had to get endorsed to go and, uh, I'd spoken to my, uh, dad about it. And, um, so anyways, I got endorsed uh, by the angels to go to scout school uh-huh. and, um, which was awesome and just learned a lot. Uh, you know, I remember I was sitting there. Uh, we were watching a Rockies um, uh, <clears throat> inner squad game, and it was it was during instructs uh, when they had instructs. Um, I think they're doing mini camps now, but um, so there I am. I'm watching uh, a guy hit, and he ends up getting a nice base hit to left field. And I'm standing with an old time scout, Jim Walton, that had 
cowboy boots on and polyester pants and <laughs> the cowboy hat. And he must've been 80 at the time. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, he had an old fashioned stopwatch, one of the ticker ones. And, um, reminds me of squeaky Parker. Yeah, <laughs> There's so many of those guys. Yeah. And I loved hanging out with all, cause you learn so yeah. much, but I'm watching him hit. And he says, Hey Todd, he goes, what'd you see right there? And I said, man, nice hit, went with the pitch, you know, pitch kind of tailed away a little bit from him and he threw his hands and a nice little base hit to left. And he goes, no, no, no. What'd you see mechanically? And so then I'm like, okay, well, let me break the swing down. So I'm breaking the swing down, you know, nice little load, good timing and rhythm, got a little on his front side. He said, uh, he said, what the pitcher's mechanics look like. And now I'm like, I'm going back to pitches because I wasn't really concentrating on that. I wasn't really interested in the pitcher, even though he's a pro guy, I just didn't really care for it. And so I'm like, well, it crossed his body, you know, a little funky arm action. He's got a little hook. Yeah. And so I'm talking about some stuff and I'm starting, I'm trying to use scout lingo because that's what we're being taught. You know, it's like a two week long, you know, all day session, uh, classroom sessions, go out in the field, scout. Mm -hmm. So he goes, okay, great. He goes, what about the left fielder? Was the left fielder in position to catch that ball? And I'm like, yes. And he goes, what was his arm like? What would you grade that left fielder's arm out like? And I'm like, oh my God, I wasn't paying attention to that. Okay. Uh, average, you know, and, and he's like, was <laughs> the shortstop? Yeah. He's like, was the shortstop in position? And what was the shortstop's first reaction? Was it left, right? Was he on his toes? Like, can you give a description of what his stance was like, you know, in pre-pitch? And I'm like, no. And he goes, you have to be able to see all of that and, as a scout. And I'm like, by the time I got done talking to, to him, I was like, okay, I've been around the game my entire life, but I don't know anything about You're the like, game. Do I want to do this? That's a, that's, <laughs> that's way too much focus. Right. Yeah. But uh, I'll tell you, it, you learn a lot. Right. Um, and now you, know, you go to a ball game and I can focus my eyes on one area of the field and I can see all the pre-pitch and see the movement of all the players. And I can identify certain areas of the windup whether he drifted or not. And I can see the timing of the hitter. And then you're working the hitter up and down as a scout. And you learn so much from those guys, as long as they're willing to open it up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed scouting. I, I thought that was a lot of fun outside the travel. It's not easy on a family. Yeah. Um, you know, as you know, so you, you, you made a good point on other, other conversation about that scouting is really either for the, the, the young guy that doesn't have a family yet or an older guy that's kids are kind of grown up. Let, like explain yeah. that a little bit more. Yeah. I think just because of the workload and the expectations, like when I, when I first was, I, I got a job with the angels uh, at a scout school and my area was Northern California. So I ended up living in a small little town, ended up being the stolen capital uh, car capital of the world, Merced, California at the time. I don't know what it's like now, We've always lived dangerously. So yeah, yeah, you gotta live dangerously. Yeah, that's how <laughs> it's supposed to be. But uh I remember Tommy Davis uh, was my uh, West Coast cross checker. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um and I we had just gotten off a two-day road trip, kind of bouncing all over California and in Nevada, um, and Reno. And so I'm home, I'm finally able to like really take a shower. So I'm I'm in the shower, I hear my phone ringing. I, you know, I'm doing my thing. I'm washing my hair, whatever. And I get out eventually and I go and check my phone and it rang another time. And uh, so it was Tommy. So I called Tommy back. I said, Hey, Tommy, what's going on? He goes, 
where were you? And I said, Tommy, I was in the shower. And he goes, I don't care if you're in the shower. When I call, you better answer that phone. I need to know an answer right now. And I'm like, oh my God. Okay. And right then he kind of set the tone of, you know, you've got to like have all your ducks lined up. You got to know when all the pitchers are going nonstop because a cross checker could come in and say, Hey, I'm coming in tonight at 10. Can you pick yeah. me up at the airport? We're going to a game in the morning and totally shifts your whole schedule. It's not easy in a family. Um, You're like, do you know, I need to no- shower with my phone? Like what do I, what, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You have to shower with yeah. you. Uh, but Tommy was a great scout. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think it's just the travel, the the unknown, you know, expectations. Most of the evenings you're gone. Right. Um, you know, you get a couple couple days in the week that you can really be home. And then financially, too, you know, I think I needed something in, at that time in my life that was a little bit more um, – I, probably, probably a little bit more. More is probably the the bigger yeah. word there. You, you start know, out for pretty all low. The, yeah, yeah, for all the hours and and the time and the commitment that you're putting <clears throat> into it, you just don't get paid very well. And yep. I think that's what's wrong with baseball today is they need to really they need to treat the scout and the baseball administrative staff and the operations teams and all the coaches. They need to treat them like they were managers in a corporate setting, because mm-hmm. in a man if they got paid what typical managers get paid in a in a warehouse or even working the corporate jobs that I've worked then I'll tell you it would be a a, a great great job um yeah. outside of being able to go watch baseball every day and the pressures that you have but uh yeah, yeah they just don't get paid enough well it in a way it kind of breaks my heart a little bit about that because you have such a I kind of maybe this fantasy, right. About being a scout and like, you're still involved in the game and you, you have input um, and you're busting your balls out there, you know, all the while, like as your kids grow up at home, you know, probably hundred to 125 nights, I think I averaged on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you're getting paid pretty crappy if we're being Frank, you know, for yeah. everything you're doing. So it's a little disheartening um, where people ask me all the time about scouting. It's I I'm upfront and honest with them. And, there's definitely like every job there's pros and cons to it. Um, there's a lot of things I loved about it. Like the, just like every, the people, right. The yep, guys, yep. The guys you're around, you feel like you're on a team again. There's yep. all, all that stuff. And then, then you get that paycheck. You're like, Hmm, you know, but it, it's like some people will do it for nothing. Right. But yeah. um, you get a, a little bit of a raise each year, you know, usually not a whole lot. So a, a little underappreciated. I think a lot of a lot of guys I've talked to and I felt a little bit that way too. Um, but but it's baseball, right? So you yeah. kind of like, ah, do I want to do this or be in a suit somewhere in an office? Yeah. So you kind of suck it up, right? And yeah, do other things. But so now what which teams you scatter for the Angels? And now was that mainly on the amateur side or did you go to the pro side too? Yeah, I did both. Uh it's kind of a hybrid guy uh between the Angels and then the Rockies. Um, so when I was in I had Northern California uh, through Nevada uh, with the Angels. And then in 2002, after we won the World Series, um, I ended up, Rockies had an opening down south. Mm-hmm. So I was, to, and I'd been asking for a, a Southern uh, job. They were, the Angels were going to split Southern California into three parts. Um, at, and it was Bobby DeJardin, Tim Corcoran, and then it was going to be myself. Yeah. Just because Southern California has so many players 
but then the Rockies had an opening uh, covering all the Southern Cal. And, um, and so I ended up taking that position under Bo Hughes and uh, Billy Schmidt. And uh, yeah. yeah, I had a blast. Um, yeah, I really loved it, but you know, then Kathy, uh, you know, we're, we're married or get married and, uh, we have, you know, our son Dylan, um, a year later and now, you know, uh, fast forward a few years and I'm sitting at a ballpark and at Dylan's game, I'm sitting at my little boy's game and, uh, I'm on the phone talking about a a prospect with somebody, uh, um, within the Rocky organization. And I miss Dylan's at bat. Um, I turn around, Dylan's giving a high five to the coach. My wife is walking my daughter, down, you know, my, I think Gracie was one or maybe two uh, down the left field line and I'm missing it. Yeah. And uh, yeah. at that moment, I just thought, man, you know, it's not, it's not worth it. So I got to do something. So I ended up uh, starting an indoor training facility. I'd given lessons. We all give lessons, right? Mm-hmm. I, I love working with kids or, yeah. or you know, uh, players and, um, so I did that for a little bit and then got an opportunity through that to meet a, a big corporate CEO of a big sports uh, company at the time. And he said, you know, what do you want to do with the rest of your life? And I said, uh, I want to maybe, you know, keep doing this. I want to make money. You know, I'd like to support my family. I mean, I knew I was probably never going to make a million dollars a year doing what I was doing, but I loved what I was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and he said, have you ever thought about going in the corporate world of sports? And I said, I don't even know. What am I going to do there? And so he said, let's talk. And so he right. spent some, he, you know, took me out to islands in California, which was like a burger joint. We probably went out, he took me out probably four or five times, you know, and this is a really busy, busy guy. And he just really cared about where I was going. I think he saw something in me that was better than what I saw. Um, yeah. And he saw what I could provide to a company with my connections and my lifelong uh, you know, just living in the game. And, um, and so at the end he said, let me see your phone. So he looks at my contacts and he said, you know, I just saw three contacts in your phone list that would take me about six months to try to build a relationship with, from a a business standpoint, he said, you could probably call these people up and say, Hey, I'm in town. Let's go out to dinner. And I, I, so he told me who they were and they were really high influential people in, in sports. And I said, yeah, I've known this guy since I was a baby and blah, blah, blah. And he said, that's business development. Mm. He said, uh, you find an organization that has, that needs connections, like what you can provide, they're going to pay you and you can be, you can be employed and make probably way more money than you were making scouting and be home with your kids. And so really just kind of painted this picture of an opportunity that I never, ever thought that I would ever have in my life. And, uh, he took a chance on me and I worked really hard for him and had a, had a really successful, you know, corporate career for about 12 years or the past 12, 13 years. So it's, yeah, yeah it's amazing if you open yeah. up your door. Right. Yeah. And, and Yeah. No, that's, that's incredible. It's, and it's where, and it's even taking you to now a new direction, right? Where your head's blocking a little bit, but you have this, this new company that you've started called the Scout Hub. Right. This you've kind of shifted towards that. Tell us about what the Scout Hub is. Yeah. So I've been pretty heavy uh into sports analytics the last six plus years. Um, I knew that where the game was going, especially baseball. So I wanted to become an expert in sports analytics and metrics, understanding uh if 
you know, what diamond kinetics and blasts. And back then I was a consultant with Zep when Zep first came out and uh, had some big conversations with those guys. I wanted to be able to, if I'm going into a conversation, I want to know what I'm talking about. And it just really intrigued me with where all that was going. Um, so uh, I ended up sitting down with a couple scouts that I had still consulted with in teams and a guy uh, didn't understand the difference between two major metrics of bad exit velocity and barrel speed on what the differences were uh, with within those two categories. And this was a national cross checker for, for an MLB team uh, as a scout. And so I started educating him on what that was. But then I also realized that the system that they were using to evaluate players was really outdated. And so I had spent, you know, again, those six months in web development and coding and uh, now with my baseball knowledge and then what I had in the corporate space, um, I was consulting with pocket radar. So I was radar certified and just there was a lot that I just kind of dove into everything. I just yeah. I just wanted to learn. Mm -hmm. And I ended up building a scouting app that's unlike anything on the market where it marries subjective scouting. So a scout, old time scout can go out and scout a player traditionally. Mm -hmm. And then a new time, new scout can go out and scout a player with metrics and using technology and it all come up with a quantified role. That's probably better than some of the MLB systems that are out that takes 25 analysts. And uh, now the game's starting to come back to scouts, um, but it allows the scout to, to really evaluate based on what they're seeing and then adding the metrics in. So I built that and where that stemmed from um, or kind of took off was uh, the Scout Hub. The Scout Hub ended up, I ended up evolving. My son needed a recruiting profile. So I made this one page scrollable platform where I could add all his videos and everything. And I wanted to make it better than anything on the market because that's me and just competitive that way. Sure. And uh, so I had a lot of people ask if they could have it. And I said, yeah, I, I can make this for you. And so that kind of evolved into the athlete resume program and, and, you know, kind of fast forwarding. Now we've got scouting and evaluation, evaluation software for showcase and tournament companies, um, uh, uh, incredible athlete promotional platform, and it's all under a hundred dollars a year. So I am not, I don't think any kid or parent should have to pay a lot of money mm -hmm. for that technology. I built it. Um, I understand how tough it is. And ours is the best in the world. We offer about 40% more benefits than anybody. Mm -hmm. You've got access to 52,000 college coach contacts, Twitter handles, multi-sports, um, all kinds of cool stuff. And it's under a hundred bucks and mm -hmm. go spend your money on development. Go work with you, Chad, you know, work on the mental side of the game. If you're planning on spending a thousand dollars a year on promoting yourself, Take a hundred, promote yourself, and take the other nine hundred if you're planning on spending that, and go put it towards uh, the development of your game, or maybe take yourself out to dinner or a vacation. Okay. Um, so that's been our big model, and uh, we're starting to, you know, uh, work with a lot of organizations, which I'm really excited about, and just keep providing more. Um, yeah. But I've got the scouting app that's been revised now, so that's coming in about thirty days. I'm really excited for that because. I built it for single coach use only. Now it's going to have the ability to invite uh, multiple scouts, multiple coaches under one account. Yeah. So it'll be really useful for college coaches, uh, programs, big
big tournament companies and things like that. So okay. So this yeah, is an good. this is an option to use instead of say paying thousands of dollars for a recruiting service. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So it's an app where you download your video, you have your profiles, you have connections through the app with college coaches, right? So it's it's just kind of everything you need is right there in one spot for under 100 bucks. Yeah, college coaches are coming in. Uh, they've got their own pages. Uh, it's got the scouting and evaluation software attached where if you go to an event, um, they're using that software, my tools, mm. um, and they evaluate you those metrics are automatically electronically added to your athlete resume your profile so it gives validation where mm -hmm. college coaches want to see what do they want to see they want to see videos where on my system it's unique because you can watch videos like nfl red zone so coaches can push play and i can watch nine videos of these of the player play all at one time so i'm getting an idea on like there he is hitting in a cage. There he is playing in a game. There he is playing defense. There he is on a mound, the multi-sport aspect, or I'm seeing hit after hit. Um, so it gives me an idea in like 10, 15 seconds on what that player is all about, uh, which is amazing coming from a scout's perspective. And then you can add your stats and metrics, um, analytics, academics, all the fun stuff. And you can even add your other player links. Like I'm not, I'm a software provider. Uh, we're not a, quote unquote recruiting company, I guess we're walking the thin line, but I want, you know, if they've got an NCS profile or a field level profile or perfect mm -hmm. game, like they can put those links into this. So okay. the college coach can have one place, which okay. is nice. So yeah, so that's what I wanted to make sure of like, are you actually literally helping people get recruited, which you just answered? No, it's more of a software that you can add all this information and college coaches are still using it. Yeah. You know, a lot of these programs, a lot of these big recruiting companies are charging hundreds or thousands of dollars, even to like promote, Hey, if you spend $40 a month, we'll let you know when a college coach views your video right. and we'll let you know which college coach that is. Well, guess what? Google just launched a program called streak. So you can set up a free Gmail account, which you should anyways, say todd.bly11 2024 And then I can click into streak, which is a CRM platform that allows me to send a video to university of Texas saying, Hey coach, check out my athlete resume profile. When, when that coach clicks on my opens up my email, I get a notification from streak for free hmm. that says, Hey, uh, your video, your link was opened. And then I can hover over that little eyeball that streak provides, uh, that gives me all the details, how many times it was open, where it was open what device they use to open it with. So there it's free. It's yeah. a free service. So there's really no reason that people should be, you know, if I'm a company like one that offers that as a service and, and kind of, that's my, that's my, my linchpin of, of saying, Hey, if you want to see which college coaches saw your profile, pay us another $40 a month, that's over $480 a year. Mm -hmm. What can families do for $480, you know, nowadays, like, you can, you can do a lot with that money, you know, yeah. maybe it pays for your, your phone bill or uh, makes a car payment for yourself every month, mm -hmm. whatever that is. And now, you know, Google just launched it for free. So I, I, I'm a big educator on, on uh, pushing that platform combined with what we provide. Um, and really uh, there's no reason I, I give you everything for under, under a hundred dollars. 
to uh, market yourself. And then you got to develop, you know, you can go out and throw around the greatest resume in the world, but if the videos aren't right, you know, in terms of you being able to play, well, what, you know, you're not going to end up getting recruited. So go spend the time with Chad Hermanson and get, get better, you know, and and other people Um, work on your game, the mental side and learn more about yourself. So, but yeah, yeah, it's been pretty exciting. And that can be just the scout hub on the app store. That's where they find that app. So it's actually a web, web app. Uh, Yeah. I found that that was a little easier, um, less expensive as well, but uh, easier because I could connect all the multiple categories of my programs all to one platform. Yeah. When you're working with an app, you're a little bit limited. And so the scout hub that's on iOS, that's my MLB scouting system. That one is now built for college programs, tournament companies. If you want to scout a player in game from the MLB pro side down to little league, uh, I've, I've scaled it and built it so a little league coach could come in and evaluate players using a really easy to use scouting system. Uh, and then a advanced pro guy, which I have four guys right now using my system uh, at the pro level, uh, which they're really excited for this new, uh, these new updates to come, but they're using it okay. um, where they've got like the MLB switch on. So yeah, yeah, yeah. it's pretty cool. Yeah. Very cool. Well, no, that's awesome. It's, it's a Thanks. Sounds like a great service and, cool software and um well that's that's awesome man you're so you're doing some amazing things and we had caught up again and we're going to dive into the the big stuff here so mm-hmm. on to, correct me if i'm wrong on the date on october 1st 2017 correct. right so your life changed you're out here in las vegas and you're out here just kind of hanging out with family friends doing your thing tell us what happened to you on that day well, um, you know, probably the precursor there is uh, we had been to that country harvest festival uh, three years, you know, prior, and and uh, that was kind of my wife and I. That was our time to really go and cut loose. You know, we had moved to Texas a few months before that you know, on August uh, of 2017, so we moved from Southern California. So a lot of our Southern California friends were coming up. We'd always meet there. Usually it was a younger crowd. We had known these kids since they were little. They called us aunt and uncle. Uh, we were the party aunt and uncle that would go party with the 21, 22 year olds. Um, but they loved it. Uh, we loved them. And uh, there was about 18 of us at this concert. Uh, some from Texas, uh, but mostly all from California. And, you know, um, I, I tell this story too, you know, going into that weekend, um, you know, my life, I, I was still trying to understand where I was at, you know, mm-hmm. personally, um, even though I had had success through my corporate career, there was always still this unknown of what I was supposed to be doing. Um, I didn't understand what my like definition of success was, you know, so when you're playing and you're winning, you're succeeding. But when you're in a corporate setting or when you're in the real world, of, of work, like sometimes that, that definition of success is undefined. And so I almost felt, felt at times like unfulfilled with my work, unfulfilled with my marriage, um, unfulfilled just as a person. I didn't really have any 
kind of daily goals. Um, I didn't have anybody really to talk to either. Uh, you know, being a guy, um, you hold a lot of stuff in and you walk through fire sometimes and, you know, you get burned and you're like, Hey, I'm just going to deal with it. You know, I'm going to deal with the pain. And, um, and I was raised as a, you know, in that kind of, in that mentality of no blood, no foul, you know, you get up, dust yourself off and go. And, uh, on that night, you know, on that weekend, it just couldn't have been better. Like we were having so much fun and we had been there, you know, to that, to that venue, uh, like I said, multiple times, um, every night, uh, for the years that we had gone, it's a three day country fest. Um, we'd always be on the right side of the stage near the VIP. In fact, my wife and I would usually get the VIP wristband so yeah. she could use the restroom that was right there. Okay. And, uh, you know, and, um, and so I remember, uh, once the last performer would come on all the girls that were in our group, uh, which were most young girls and my wife, they would all run up to the stage and they'd, secure you know kind of this area right up on the rail and us guys would kind of be about 10 feet back or less and we'd be drinking our beers and hanging out and watching the girls you know dance and the performers there and it was always just so much fun and yeah. um and you felt like free you know like there was just not a care in the world what was going on and you know i'm a big country guy i love country i've loved it my entire life and so uh, Jason Aldean is getting ready to come on on October uh, 1st. And um, my birthday was the 27th of September. And mm -hmm. so, you know, it was a better weekend. I mean, it just seemed like I was always celebrating my birthday in Vegas and we loved Vegas and we still do. Um, but that was our place to just go and unwind. And uh, so he comes on and for the first time we decide we're not going to go up to the front by the rails we were about 20 feet back and for some reason we had this little opened area and we were dancing and having fun and there's video of me dancing with i call her my niece but it's just someone that we've known since she was little mm -hmm. and uh and i'm dancing with her and i was just dancing with my wife just before that and we we're swing dancing and all of a sudden you know you hear these noises uh little pops and uh, um, you're trying to figure out where, where it's coming from and what it was. Uh, but then you look around and law enforcement's still on the right-hand side. I was always pretty aware of where I was at. Um, have a lot of law enforcement buddies. I've always heard stories about things. Uh, I wanted to be a Marine coming out of college. That was either I was joining the Marine Corps, which I did in my junior year, or I'm going to go play baseball and you know i uh, was honored to go play baseball and go do that but so i was always pretty aware with what i was where i was at um but uh the first first round of popping sounds uh, went off uh jason's still playing and um and then all of a sudden you hear this uh barrage of machine gun fire and uh at that moment you know, that's when everybody started thinking, okay, there's a drive-by, there's something going on on the other side of the wall on Las Vegas Boulevard, uh, near Mandalay Bay, and uh, what is it? But yet, you know, now you look over and police are on their walkies and they're starting to kind of like get a little nervous, but Jason's still playing. 
And so you're like, okay, well, it was a, it was a burst, um, but like it seems like everybody's okay in that minute, and then all of a sudden the second sh- uh, round started, and that's when you're hearing the screams and everybody's going down and Jason goes off the the uh, runs off the uh, stage, and that's when you're telling everybody to get down on the ground, and you realize that now you are a target. Yeah. And people are getting hit around you. And you got your wife mm-hmm. right there in front of you. You're on one knee. And I look up and I could see the muzzle flash coming from a high elevated spot across uh, Man- at-, at Mandalay Bay. And so I knew we were basically in an open fire range that uh, with no coverage and we were sitting ducks. And so um, I told everybody to get up and run. And that's exactly what we did. I pulled my wife up and uh, my brother-in-law and his wife were right there. And we got up and everybody started to run. And I can't tell you, man, like, you know, that's, I still think about it, you know, almost every day, that moment of as you're running and I wanted to get further away from the gunfire. So we ran East towards Giles street and there was a Budweiser booth uh, at the end of kind of where the, food vendor row ended. Um, and so I wanted to get to that Budweiser booth because it was metal and all this happened super quick. And so we're running and, you know, uh, the second round was still going off, like within the first probably feel, felt like 10 yards, right? Um, everything just slowed down in your life. And as you're running, you feel like you just can't, you don't know if your, your boot's going to land on the ground. I mean, that's basically what I try to tell people is, it was that scary. It was that real. And you got your wife in front of you and all you're trying to do is be as big as you can, as a big, as big as a target as you can be um, praying that if, if a bullet does come that way, that it's going to hit you and not your wife. And um, we were able to successfully get to the Budweiser booth and um, we sat there for less than really probably a second Uh, I got everybody back up. I realized the gate was open onto Giles. There were some squad cars there for parking control. Um, We got to the squad car. There was already a couple people uh, there that had been injured. Um, One girl had been hit. um, And uh, we were going to stay there. And I looked down towards Tropicana on Giles and recognized there were four cars there, uh, squad cars. So I said, let's get up. I mean, it was kind of like, hunker down, get up hunker down let's go and um we started to run chad and i'm out like we're out right um and i look over to my left and uh there's a guy carrying a a woman that had been hit and he's carrying her like a pair of scissors i mean it was a uh a younger girl and i i ran over to to my left and helped him we got about five yards and we laid her down and she was gone. Um, and I, at that moment, you know, um, I got, uh, man, that was tough. Uh, I ran back to my wife and, um, I just knew I had to go back in. And so you know, I looked her in the eyes and I told her that, uh, I loved her. Um, but I need to go back in. And I think, you know, she was dazed. Um, my brother-in-law and uh, my his his wife were sitting right there. And so I told Joe, take the girls and go run north. I'll find you when this is over. And at the time, 
I didn't know who was shooting. Like I knew there was a shooter from above, but as we were running the acoustics, it seemed like there was a shooter on stage Mm -hmm. or in that general direction. It seemed like there was a shooter almost in front of us to our, to the South on Southeast uh, Giles. So it seemed like there were multiple shooters and I'm not, I'm not saying there was by any means it's the acoustics and the audio that was going on. Plus you're running and your heartbeat and everything else. Um, so I'm not getting into conspiracy theories there or, or any of that stuff, but the uh, the fact was is that people were getting hit, people needed help, and so I had two arms and two legs, and I ran back in, I kissed my wife goodbye, and watched her run, and then I turned around, and um, you know when I ran back in, obviously you're scared as shit. I mean you're scared out of your mind you don't know what you're going to see you don't know what you're going to come up on i'm in i'm in defense fight mode mm. where if i see I'm, I'm expecting somebody to come around the corner of that budweiser booth with a gun and i'm going to tackle that sob and take him out like that's mm. that was the mentality there and i end up coming across an, an older woman um at least she seemed older uh and she had been shot and she was hobbling out and uh, I don't know why she was alone, but I picked her up and I ran her back out to the squad car. And I thought this will be the spot. So this is where I'm going to go in. I'm going to get people. I'm going to pull them out. And um, as soon as I laid her down, I went back. And right as I was going back through the gates, a blonde haired woman, probably five foot nothing, stopped me and said, I'm a trained ER nurse. What can I do to help? I said, ma'am, there's already women down there that are injured there's a security guard or, or a police officer or somebody right there as well. He, he had hurt his foot. Um, if you can just put your hands on them and I'll be back, That's, I'm going to go in and get more people out. And so um, I just kept running back and forth and, you know, uh, there's video of me coming up. Uh, it was probably the second or third time I had gone in. Um, there was a girl that was, that was shot. I um, was, this lady was screaming for help and I went around and screamed for a medic, uh, a nurse, someone to come out. A brave girl came out of hiding, uh, you know, a brunette girl. Don't know who she is, but she said she was a nurse. She came, I brought her over to this, uh, it was the same Budweiser booth. We had, we had hunkered down in for a brief Mm -hmm. second, uh, put her over the rail and she helped save this girl's life. And this, you know, it was all captured Mm -hmm. on video by this, bystander that was filming basically her last video is what she was calling it. Um, And then you start to hear the tinkering of the bullets hitting that building, that Budweiser booth. And I run off back into the venue. I think that's about the time when I had come across uh, Rachel Parker, which was a Manhattan beach uh, clerk officer and, um, and her two friends and, uh, you know, they were struggling to get her out. And I was, there was already a couple people that I had passed that were gone, um, that I had checked for life, uh, while they were unfortunately on the turf. And, um, I ended up picking up Rachel and bringing her out. I ran her out with her two friends, uh, put her in a car and, uh, and they were able to get off to the hospital. Um, unfortunately she didn't make it, uh, you know, the next morning. Um, I didn't know. I didn't know who she was. I didn't find that out until later through Facebook after everything was over. Um, somebody had found me, connected me to the woman that was looking for the person that carried 
their friend out. Um, I couldn't understand why I was yelling at this older guy. I wanted him to get in the car, but I, I couldn't figure out why at that time. And this is what EMDR therapy, and I'll go into that later. Um, this is what I, what, how it really helped me. But at that time, I remember yelling at a man, like, and he was, he was like cussing me out. And I'm like, you SOB, like, don't you know what's going on here? Like get in the car. And I didn't understand why I wanted this guy to get in the car. And it turns out like, it was a, it was a, a female driver and three females in the back. And I don't know why, but I, I need, I felt like I needed, we thought we were under attack. Right. So not that they couldn't have like, you know, taken care of themselves, but I, I wanted someone to be with them. And uh, I was so mad. And when I met these girls, they, they told me, do you remember what you said to that guy? Like you were yelling at him and, and then you ran off and you ran back in uh, to the venue. And I said, now I know, like I, you totally connected me back. I understand why. I, and so it all came back to me. But, you know, when I went back in after um, I, I got Rachel out, uh, I carried out a, a younger girl um, that was down. And, uh, you know, she reminds me of my niece. It was really hard. And um uh, she ended up passing in my arms uh, on the street there. And I laid her down and uh, I had my world series ring on, um, you know, at that time uh, with the angels. Mm -hmm. And uh, I remember looking down and I saw my ring and, um, you know, at that moment, like nothing was good about it. Right. So I turned it around. Uh, I didn't want to see it. And a gentleman asked if I knew who she was. I said, no. And he told me that she was gone. I said, yeah, I know. And, and, you know, after that, um, you get up, uh, you're so thirsty. Uh, I, I'd cry out for a beer or water or something. And people yeah. would just throw me whatever they had in their hands as waves of people were starting to run out. Right. Um, waves of people now were going with me and running back in uh, where it was just me and probably others around the venue and people that were instant dropping down on people, you know, that had been uh, mm -hmm. shot and injured and, you know, helping. Uh, but now there was, there, there was more than uh, a, you know, a lot of people going back and forth and helping and, and bringing people out. Um, but I probably carried close to 30 or more people out, you know, over mm -hmm. my shoulder, um, you know, across my arms. Uh, we carried one, uh, woman. Well, there were a lot of people that were getting carried out on like uh, rails, um, wheelbarrows. There was a construction site down on the southeast side of Giles. Um, I came up on a, a people that were putting a, a girl into a wheelbarrow, and I grabbed the handles and and ran her out. Um, I don't think she made it either, uh, just by the look of her. Um, I mean, she was already gone, mm. and. Um, you know, you're putting people into cars and trucks and you're just doing whatever you can. And you know, you're pouring water over yourself. You're trying to, trying to like, just keep moving. That's all I kept wanting to do. I was hurt. Um, you know, my leg, I have a bad uh, knee. I got a bad hip. Um, you know, and that just completely tore it out. I ended up getting, you know, a, a really bad hernia. I tore my left shoulder all up, had major reconstructive surgery from that, just from lifting and pulling throwing people over. Um, you know, it was just, it was horrible. I had blood all over me. Um, unfortunately, you know, my hat, 
um, my clothes, my boots, my boots were tore up just from probably, you know, running and sliding on the ground. And, um, all you're trying to do though, is just trying to help. And at one point I, I got up and I looked down Giles and I poured, just drank some water and poured some water over my face. And now all of a sudden, like there was three, four people when I first went in and now there's hundreds on the street. And, right. and on top of them were a thousand people helping and it was inspirational. And so the emotions went from, holy shit, scared out of your mind to courage and run and do what you can to help somebody until you fall. Um, you know, at one point I'm standing there like a third base coach, waving people out from where they were at, where they were literally under uh, using chairs as coverage. This was during the shooting. And they didn't know that the the opening right on the other side of that Budweiser booth was open. So I'm waving people to get going and get out that exit point. And all of a sudden you're hearing the tinkering flying by my head. Thank God nobody got hit, mm. but you know, where they were all able to get out. But yeah, you just, it was tremendously scary and it didn't stop. Um, you know, it ended up where all of a sudden you're running over to Tropicana Um and you're being told there's a shooter, an active shooter there. Uh, you're under the under the backside of Tropicana in the service entrance. And you've got 150 people you're taking care of. You're barreling through doors looking for a shooter. You know, at one point, I'm, I hand my wallet to uh, this, this Marine that was next to me, and an EMT and a firefighter. And I said, if I get shot, you know, you just you know who I am and you better take the son of a bitch out and you're barreling through doors and you're hitting all you're seeing is like 20 people, 30 people on top of each other because people were scattered everywhere, just trying to hide. You didn't know if you're under attack. You didn't know if it was a single shooter. You know how I thought it went on for eight hours. Mm. Um, so the end of the night, it, uh, you know, ambulances are finally starting to come back and, I'm told that somebody at the end of this tunnel has a, has a knife in their hands and they're wielding it around. And so now me and these three guys are running down this runway, just passing all these people that are sitting down and I'm coming up on this dude and he's got a knife in his hand and he's doing this. And I'm, I'm like hoping or you know praying just, I've got a baseball in my hand or something, right? All I want to do mm -hmm. is like throw it at him, but I'm yelling at the guy like, you good guy, bad guy. And I'm screaming this at the guy and the guy looks up and I'm able to grab his hand and throw him up against the wall and disarm him. And it turns out he was just a, a innocent guy scared out of his mind. Um, you know, not trying to do any harm. He was just scared. And that's how crazy it was um, in terms of people's, how scared everybody was not naturally. I mean, you know, I think it was over 500 or 800 people uh, ended up getting shot that night or injured. Uh, we lost 58 uh, that night. Now I had my hands on five of them um, in terms of two got made it to the hospital after the uh, we were let out. I was, I didn't know where my wife was. So um, I had 1% battery life left. They let you out uh, right in, right in the front of Tropicana, which was stupid. 
because I looked down to the left and all I could see is, you know, all the fire engines and that was scary. And then I had to walk. She was at the Desert Rose Resort, which was right behind Tropicana. And so I'm tracking her on my on my maps and I'm walking down this lonely, dark road to get behind Tropicana to go get her. And um, just scared, just completely, completely scared. It finally started settling in, but I was able to meet, meet up with her and give her a kiss. And we reunited um, and we left the next day. But, uh, you know, we went back, um, we went back a couple of years ago and we walked around and um, that was really tough. Mm. Like we went back to the venue. Of course, it's not the same when you see it during the day. Right. But uh, uh, we went we went to the healing garden and we walked around and you know I'm about five steps in. When you go there, you know you walk around to the left and you can see all the little memorials that people, friends had made uh, pictures and, and brought them to life. Right? They just weren't. Unfortunately, they just weren't like a, a body. They unfortunately they were somebody in right. that moment. And um, and we got about five five spots in or so six spots i'm not sure and uh and then i noticed one of the girls that passed away in my arms and um she was a younger girl and uh that that really like you know i I didn't want to i didn't want i didn't know really what to expect when i went walking around there like i wanted to pay my respects i wanted to say prayers you know, and, and, um, but I didn't really, I didn't think it was really going to hit me as, as hard. I knew it was, it was tough, but to see their face and to see that they were, she was a real person, you know, and then we walked another few feet and there's another one. Mm-hmm. And then there was Rachel and Rachel's the only one that I really knew her name because her friends reached out to me. And I thought she had lived. And then in a, in Messenger, we were going back and forth. She said, I'm really sorry. Because I had said, I'm I'm really happy that the three of you made it out. Um, and she said, I'm sorry that uh, Rachel didn't make it. She died at the hospital uh, hours later. But you should know that you gave her an opportunity. And she didn't die alone. And she died with people trying to save her. Yeah. And that's... That's how I felt when, you know, I, I saw these four women um, as we walked around the healing garden. I started thinking, you know, they didn't die by themselves and they die with at least somebody with a loving hand, you know, that was that was really trying truly to help them. It sucks. It's not the way that anybody should go. Um, I'm mad over it, you know, of course. I have anger uh, on that moment. I've never wanted to find out about the stupid shooter. I've never wanted to know who he was. He's a dark mask behind, you know, the the uh, the bursting of, of bullets. But um, what happened there uh, was truly, truly tragic. And all I can say is that people rose up to uh to show their love against all adversity and all odds people from vegas 
mm-hmm. first responders. People came out of everywhere to help. Um, the unity, the Vegas love, the country love, it was part of my healing process. And it gave me hope again that it, there's just not all bad people in this world, that there's way more good in our society. And I think that's one thing that, you know, uh, everything from the, the sporting events in Vegas to the hotels and just everybody about it really felt, I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a knock in the face to everybody there and, and nobody was going to stand for it. And so you could feel the love. It, it helped. I went through therapy, um, found EMDR therapy. I was recommended uh, by a buddy of mine that was a fire captain up in Northern California. And uh, that really worked. It really helped me understand more um, about where my boots took me that night. You know, when you go through a traumatic event like that, mentally you're mush um, and you're trying to piece it all together and you're playing this movie back in your head. And the movie goes from, you know, the, the beginning maybe to the end, to the middle, and it skips around all over the place with what you remember. And, um, and what EMDR therapy did for me is it took one minute at a time, allowed me to process that minute and put it into the right spot um, Mm. in chronological order. So I remember the majority of where I was at, why I was there, what it, what it felt like. And I got to process all that. And I'm not a, I'm not a crier, but man, I cried. Mm. I really cried and uh, it's exhausting, but I found a a great therapist after a couple tries. um, And she was my light. She's my angel. Um, I found my strength and faith, you know, and um, I knew I wasn't alone that night when I got home that first night. Uh, obviously, like I get a phone call from a buddy of mine um, uh, that I now I didn't know who he was. He's a friend of my dad's, but he's a retired uh, a SEAL. Um, he was a ranger. And um, he called and told me, hey, brother, like this is what you're going to go through. This is the experience that you're going to have over the next 72 hours. I'm here for you. I you know, did three tours in combat. Your hero, we had weapons, you didn't. All these things. I'm like, well, I'm not a hero. I'm just, I just wanted to go back in and help people. And and um, so he really became a resource for me. I knew I wasn't alone at that moment. He reached out to me. He he grabbed my heart. He grabbed, you know, mentally, I was I was locked in with him. Um, and then that night, uh, I woke up probably around three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning, um, grabbed my wife's leg and I was in this dream and I was running in the field. I could hear it. could smell it. Uh, you could smell the bullets on the turf. Um, you can hear the screams and, um, like I'm running in, I'm trying to get a guy out that's screaming for help and bullets are flying to my left. And I can see the red tracers. And so I'm kind of bobbing and weaving a little bit. And then bullets are flying to my right. And now bullets are flying on both sides of me. And I come up on a pole and I'm there and I can't go anywhere. And I can still hear the man crying for help. And all of a sudden out of my right comes this white light. And this angel basically appears in front of me, unfolds its wings, and now is scooting back towards Mandalay Bay. And the bullets are ricocheting off his wings. And I can come out now 
and run out and pick up this man and run him back towards Giles and go through those gates. And as I'm running, I'm looking over my right side and all I see is this angel following me and the bullets ricocheting off his, off his wings. I woke up Chad and um, I'll tell you, man, like I wasn't alone and, and I felt strength. I took that shower my next morning. And when I took the shower in Vegas, that next morning, we got back to our hotel hotel room about six thirty, seven o'clock in the morning. Um, I had blood all over me. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'm, I'm the water's running off me. I'm seeing the blood, you know, kind of wash away off my skin on my left shoulder. Um, and that next morning, when now I'm at my house and I'm in my own shower, and I'm looking, and I could see that same. It's just a memory, right? Um, of what had happened and just getting all that washed off me. And that's all I wanted to do was um, just be cleansed. And, mm-hmm. and uh, we went to church that next Sunday and, you know, of course now you're like hyper vigilant. You're looking at everything. You're the next shooters right around the corner with everywhere you go um, uh, at that time. And, but when I got into church, I almost felt like, I could take my armor off, you know, and I could just relax and I could melt. And it wasn't for a couple times of going back and forth and feeling more secure, but there I am, I'm sobbing in the back corner of the church and my wife's, you know, to my left. And I didn't know my kids were there. Uh, My wife reminded me my kids were there as well. And the pastor, I didn't even know he's standing behind me and he reaches up and he puts his hand on my shoulder and he says, it's going to be okay. And then he gets up there and he starts, you know, talking about this message of faith and adversity and everything in your life. And so it's just been a big, uh, it's been a, a, you know, my faith has increased. Um, I feel like I've got an ultimate, ultimate strong connection to God and Jesus. And I know I wasn't alone. The angels were there to protect me. I'm a big target. So I I ran in, I got shot at a bunch of times, um, you know, in terms of where the bullets were landing around my feet. And um, I truly feel like, you know, all I tried to do was help and get as many people out as I could. Uh, It came with consequences. I live with it every day, but um, I would do it again, you know, if it meant being able to save somebody's life and give them a chance to live. So there's my story on Las Vegas. Um, (laughs) It's incredible. yeah. Yeah, it's incredible, man. It's amazing how you just get through that, right? And um, you've obviously told this story a bunch of times. And the, uh, like, as you're telling it, right? I'm sure the listeners are just like, you're replaying, like, you're seeing it visually in your mind, like everything that you're saying. And you're, and so, I mean, 30 people, like, that's just talk about the definition of a hero. Like, no, you are a hero. Like you may, you you may not want to admit it because you're just a humble guy, but like that is, it's incredible. Um, I, I can't even remember this, the movie, but the, there's a movie that reminds me of this. It was a, it's a war movie uh, came out. I think it was Andrew Garfield and I'm drawing a complete blank on it, what it is, but um, they had to cl- like rope up and climb up a hill to get over the top of the hill and he's in and out just saving people left and right. 
Um, and he's not even a, he's not even a war guy. He's like, he's not even supposed to be, you know, in the battle necessarily. <clears throat> but yeah, the, then, then when you added the, the part of the angel, right. And you're six, five, like you're a big dude. Mm-hmm. And, and imagine how big this angel was, you know, mm-hmm. of being able to cover you and, um, to give you that space. Like that's, that's amazing. Yeah. The, um, so I'll show you, I got a tattoo from that night. Um, <clears throat> yeah, that one show you a little bit, but, uh, Psalm 9111. Yep. Um, uh, written up country strong at the bottom there. Yep. And then there's five stars. And each one of those stars um, represents somebody that night. Uh, well, one represents the 58 that mm-hmm. passed that night. Mm-hmm. Um, one is uh, for my wife. The other one is for uh, EMT that was with me. Um, the second half of the night. Yeah. I, I look up, the, the guy's like, brother, like, where are we going next? I'm like, who are you? He goes, I've been with you. You're carrying him out. We're fixing him up. And, you know, I saw some images of him. People were sharing on Facebook too, like just a true hero. Um, the five foot nothing nurse ended up being a, she set up three triage centers on Giles Street mm-hmm. and was like managing all of that. I mean, just a true, just a, you know, she's an angel. And then the the brunette that, um, that came out of, of hiding and shelter uh, to trust a complete stranger to come with me to help that poor girl uh, that had been shot. Um, so I wear them in my arm as a badge of honor and reminds me every day to just try to be the best person I can be. Mm-hmm. Um, I still have my boots and hat and you know, I, I keep it all locked up or not locked up, but closed up. And um I, I have it in a place where I can see it every morning when I put my socks on and mm-hmm. it reminds me of, of uh, just how strong I think you can be through any life's challenges. Right. Yeah. Well, it's amazing to me is you, you, the thoughts of you get your wife out. Like that's kind of your first thought and your instinct, like get in front of me. I'm going to block you. Let's just get out of here as quickly as possible. And then you get her out and you're, you're, close ones are out you're safe in a way right and then immediately your brain whatever it was just said i'm going back in i'm going back in to help as many people as i can and you end up pulling 30 people out and you mentioned that i guess you've had thoughts of well why did i do that why didn't i just get out of there i was safe i'm alive my wife's alive why not just keep going and keep running down the street um, and, and obviously no shame in that whatsoever, but something told you to know, stay is, is that, have you tried to figure that out? Was that part of kind of your process of like, why did I even go back in there? I, I did. I, I questioned that, but what I always felt, um, was the first touch that I had when I had helped that young man lay that girl down Mm -hmm. something about her touch when i touched her 
it was her right wrist and I had her right boot mm-hmm. and we set her down, but it was the touch. I'll never forget it. Um, that just something told me to go back and just trust. Yeah. And so I, when I told my wife, I'll, I'll be okay. Um, I believe that. And I just kept moving and something mm-hmm. kept me going. I mean, you know, I wasn't in shape, uh, not in not not in that kind of shape. But um, yeah, I had gone through like God. Right before I started scouting, I went through a a police training deal, you know, to to maybe be a police officer, and mm. um, that was another dream I had. And uh, so I'd run through like those obstacles, and I you know you drag the the bot the dummy bag or yeah. whatever, you know. And I was always pretty good at that. It wasn't that big of a thing, but I look back on it now, you know, I did carry about probably 30 people out. Um, and then I got a lot more out just, you know, out of hiding and um, just, you know, guiding them to, to keep running and stay North. And, um, and then all the people you put in the cars and stuff, but like, I don't think I was alone. I really don't. And yeah. I, I strongly yeah. feel that God was with me and I have yeah. my strength. Why? Well, every inclination is that it was his, his spirit, the Holy ghost, whatever you want to call it. Um, that was probably your prompting, right. And yeah. get back in there. Like you're going to help save people's lives. And you did without really sounds like hesitation. You just went no hesitation. It. And what was your, was your wife? Was she kind of like, where are you going? Like, why are you doing this? Like any, any of that happened for you? No, I think she knew. Um, she just knew that's who I was. Uh, I think maybe the first words were like, what? But then she trusted me and I sent her off. Um, I think her brother was probably more upset at me than anything. And, Uh you know, her story, um, when they ran around, uh, Giles passed this church to get over by that desert rose. And, um, they were in between two cars and uh, her brother ended up finding like a construction sign and had it sitting on the hood of two cars. And they were kind of underneath it. Cause they didn't know, you know, with bullets or whatever, they were just oh. trying to kind of shield themselves from anything. Okay. Um, and a guy came out of one of those rooms uh, and said, Hey, I've got room in here. Uh, if you guys want to come in. And so he, him, and I think, I think, Kathy said there was like four or five of them or three of them uh, that all invited about 20 some odd people into their place and they barricaded it. Um, They, you know, closed all the blinds. They put things up against the door. Um, There was one person in there that was injured. Uh, They were taking care of that person and they hunkered down in there until, you know, SWAT came in and cleared the rooms and Mm. everything out uh, later on. Uh, And then that's where Kathy stayed until, I was able to get in touch with her. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, true, you know, that guy didn't have to come out of his shelter and, uh, and help all those people and, you know, bring those people to safety. And he provided a lot. I don't think he understands truly what he did, you know, but he saved a lot of lives, mm-hmm. um, whether directly or indirectly, you know, just yeah. him offering that shelter was probably huge. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Well, you've, you've taken like i i'm i'm here in vegas that night i was sleeping like i i didn't hear it i didn't i didn't even know what was going on 
And I can't, I think it was just early the next morning, you know, and like usually we don't flip on the TV in the morning, but we, we did, I think that morning, was it a Saturday night? Uh, I think it was a no Sunday night. I believe. And, and and we just heard, you know, they're like, holy crap. Like I can almost see Mandalay Bay outside my window from my home almost. Right. And I was just, it, it was shocking. Right. And so, so that all happened. Um, now you've taken this experience and this circumstance in your life and you're, you're like, how can I, how can I basically make it good? You know, how can I bring positive out of this? Um, and you started a, a podcast yourself, um, the walking tall podcast, is that correct? Yeah. So tell us about like what you're doing moving forward through this whole process. Yeah, you know, I've always kind of felt I've, I've spoken at some churches. Um, you know, obviously, I've I've been asked to tell the story. Uh, Anthony Castro Vince through MLB uh, TV and .com wrote a really nice story on this piece and put a video together. Um, it's pretty compelling. Uh, he did a good job. I was on I was in the Athletic. Um, your own Weitzman wrote a nice piece on on me there. And it was, it, I say nice because it, I think it shed more light on the love mm-hmm. and the, uh, the adversity that we deal with and how I was able to overcome that, but not just me, all those that are, that were affected through that tragedy, um, in terms of being together and community support. And so I've always wanted to do something better. Well, last year, obviously we had a shooting at Highland park in Chicago, um, a connection of mine through baseball um, introduced me to a gentleman that was there. Uh, he was the Parks and Rec director of Highland Park. He's the one that put the 4th of July parade on, or as far as managing it um, mm-hmm. that day. And uh, his name's Chris Malazuski. And so I was there to mentor Chris uh, through his going through his mush stage and walk through uh, the fire with him to regain his strength uh, as an individual and his faith. And he has now just completely blossomed and it's been so much fun and, and amazing to watch him grow as a man and as a, a person and his strength. And so he called me uh, or he texted me on January 16th, asking if there was something that I ever thought about doing good. You know, I've ever thought about doing good with what happened in our tragedies and my tragedy and I said, yeah, I think about it all the time, but what do you have in mind? And he said, what about starting a podcast and then doing like speaking engagements with colleges and, and different programs and talking about our strength and adversity and you're not alone and trying to break the stigma up of, of uh, between military law enforcement um, sports where it's okay to say that you're not doing well. Mm-hmm. Like it, some of the toughest people in the world have cried to me. I know that like yeah. that we've cried together um, and I'll go anywhere and do anything. And you're never going to call me a name uh, that I'm not going to like or ever put me down because I've proven myself. And so if it's okay for me to cry and okay for me to be vulnerable, well then maybe it's okay for someone else. Maybe it's okay for one of your listeners that's listening right now. That's dealing with a lot of shit and going through a lot of anxiety or just is a, is kind of afraid to open up. There are, there is somebody that you can listen to, or that's going to listen to you. There's somebody you can talk to that's maybe gone through that battle that you're dealing with. 
And that was big. I, you know, we, we spent a lot of time thinking about how we can try to just bring guests on to tell stories of adversity that they've gone through. Um, and, and then just, you know, really just try to help. And so the walking tall movement was created to be able to really provide that guidance um, and know that it's not a weak, when you think about walking tall, it's not a weak saying, it's something of strength. And it takes strength to be able to be vulnerable and be and show empathy and show grace and be a man of God. And it's not all faith-based um, by any means, like Chris and uh, Vanetta, Dr. LaRosa, uh, myself, we don't push any agenda or any policy. We don't talk about any of that stuff, Yeah, but it's just all about sharing a story of adversity and how that person was either able to over, uh, overcome that immediate pain to learn how to live with things on, on, uh, as they move forward in their life, either together or with some, some sort of support. And that's a survival guide for somebody, you know, that's, that's dealing with things. You don't have to deal with it. The stigma of not being able to be honest with your boss at work and say, hey, you know what? I'm like struggling right now. Do you have like 10 minutes? I know we talk about things. Can I just literally open up to you? Right. I just, I, I need someone to talk to. You should not have to hold that crap in. And we do it. We hold that stuff in all the time. And what's that? What kind of life are we teaching our kids? Right. Because our kids' mental health is a direct reflection of our own mental health. And so- the walking tall movement was created to just really be open. And we've had some incredible guests on that are sharing stories. Uh, we had a combat Marine, a wounded Marine on told his, his battle story, which was gripping, um, brought me back to where I was at. I didn't really care for that part. Um, but his, his story of, of strength and, you know, and it's like you, you're, you're bringing on, you know, guests and we're talking about our stories and our lives. And all we're trying to do is just, is maybe try to share that one story that's going to hit that one person, whether it's in sports or in real life, there's right. always an application that can be applied to help somebody. Right. Um, so we got that. And then I'm building a, a teaser alert uh, coming out here, probably <laughs> towards the end of summer. Or so we'll be beta testing it. But um, you know, for me struggling to find a therapist when I actually decided I needed help, mm -hmm. um, which was really tough for me, uh, especially my mentality. And then it took me a while to find my match. Um, so I'm building a platform that is a little bit better, I think, than most platforms out there, so especially the big ones uh, that provide a little bit more of a uh, an easier way to connect to a therapist Right. And so the whole goal there is when somebody says I need help to get them the help to get a connection created a little bit quicker than what's acceptable with, you know, 90 days, 60 day window of trial. It should, if I say I need help, I need help. I, I can't go back. And, right. Like you know, today, like today, like get I me want, in tomorrow. Right. Yeah. And it's yeah. not going to be a hundred percent, you know, proof, you know, there's yeah, nothing that's sure. guaranteed. But maybe instead of it being 90 days or maybe instead of it being an hour and a half of going through administrative work that a therapist has to go through before you even start therapy and you're $400 in or $100 in or whatever that is, maybe your therapy starts in 30 minutes. Maybe you start to talk about things, which is going to increase you know, retention rates on the therapy side from the therapist, and it's going to give people someone to talk to quicker.
right. instead of this 60 day, 60 day window where you're still biting. And that's why a lot of people don't, you know, they give up, they go the one time and they didn't really care for it. It wasn't a good match. I tried it and now I'm just going to eat my headaches. And unfortunately that's why our suicide rates are so high. Um, so I'm on a mission through that platform with walking tall, um, along with what I'm going to be coming out with here soon okay. uh, to, uh, yeah. Hey, if it helps one person, great. Oh, no, that's you know? great. Yeah. yeah. No, it's, and, and I, my first thing was like, when you told me about the other day, I was like, it's amazing. And I'm sure there's stuff that's already out there, but it's like, totally. how is not like a huge company? Like, and maybe it is right. You've done the research, of course, but why is that not already there? And just like, boom, I know exactly where to go to. Um, but now you got competition a little bit, right. And in different ways and avenues to get there. Yeah, I, there's definitely, there's some great platforms and I'm not saying anything negative whatsoever. If, if somebody's going to put effort into building something that's going to eventually help people yeah. uh, better themselves, man, hats off to you. I'm, I'm a big proponent on that. Mm. I do not want any competition in the space. I just want to be able to provide something to the best of my ability. And I think kind of like scouting or you being able to have this podcast and you be able to talk to somebody about baseball or the mental side of the game, you have the experience. Well, unfortunately I have the experience in going through the worst mass shooting in history. And because of my actions and what I saw and felt, and I had, you know, unfortunately women pass on my arms and that experience that night has given me the expertise to build something in the customer or patient or users uh, anxiety, right. Of yeah. I need help. I I've been there and I'm not saying that anybody else is, you don't need to go through a mass shooting to have that feeling. You could, you know, drive by and hear a loud bang. You could be in a car accident. You could, you know, uh, parents with children with autism or any type of, of needs. I mean, everybody goes through things in our life. So it's not, I'm definitely not saying that what I went through is the worst by any means. Uh, I was not maimed. You know, I had surgeries, but I still have all my limbs. I'm not like our brave soldiers, you know, our men and women in military and dedicating their lives to our country. Um, you know, I'm not a first responder that's going on call after call after call wow. uh, or a nurse that's dealing with patients day after day after day or a teacher. You know, I'm not that. So there's so many people that need help, but I think when you have passion, you have love, you have faith, uh, and you have strength, those are good combinations to try to build something. Maybe that's yeah. just a little better, you know? No, that's a great idea. No, yeah. I think it's, I think it's going to be fantastic. And, uh, just the fact that you want to take this, like you said, this situation that happened to you in your life and, and it's like, you feel like it's your calling a little bit. Yeah. Right. And, yeah. And, uh, just make it better. And and maybe you're six, five big dude for a reason, right? And maybe. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you got that presence, but, but man, this has been Todd, this is amazing. Fantastic. I mean, number one, I kudos to you for just being able to share this story. And um, I guess with such grace, right. That you're just able to kind of flow through it. And obviously you bet you work through a lot of the trauma through it with a therapist and, um, and you had the courage to go do that, right. And to get that and recognize I need to, I need some help. So you, you kind of let that guard down and, and just said, let's just go do this. So 
Yeah. Appreciate you doing this, man. Best of luck oh. to you and in, in, in this, you know, the mental health platform, uh, your scouting hub, a lot, lot of different avenues for you going on and, and a lot of good you can do. So thanks. I, pre I appreciate you being on the show. Well, thanks, brother. I mean, it's it's uh, it's full circle, right? You know, you came up when you, I remember you as a God, you could really hit. Um, I remember seeing I'm like, this kid's how old? <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, now I appreciate you having me on and, um, I gotta have you on ours. That would be amazing. Cause I know you've got a really cool story. Um, and, uh, you know, I think on the, uh, the one thing that I've always enjoyed in watching your shows and things, it's always been so genuine. Um, you know, and, and I've always appreciated you for that. Um, and just, you know, pouring it out. So you're not afraid to <laughs> even tell your own stories of when you were playing and some of the, the crappy parts that happened, you know, and, and yeah. hopefully kids can learn from that. Oh you know? yeah. yeah. Listen, it's the biggest advice. You got to open your mind. You got to be able to listen to people that have gone through that and then apply your own kind of path to how you can navigate through that. But if you, if you don't listen to how they're guiding you then you're going out blind, why are you going to do that? Right. That's wasted time, wasted energy. We've already been through all that. So, <laughs> yeah, but thank you for having me on. I really yeah. appreciate it. My pleasure. And we'll yeah. be in touch soon. And all we'll right. see you in the next show, guys. Take care.